You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 11th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Japan and the UK join forces to counter Chinese influence. Are Western sanctions on Russia working? And when does a parliament building do what it's supposed to? I'm Emma Nelson and the Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and a warm welcome to the Monocle Daily. We're coming to you from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and my guests today, Charles Hecker and Agathe Dumarais, will discuss some of the day's biggest stories, including the confidential documents found in President Biden's old office. Plus, our Latin America correspondent will tell us about a new artist's residence in Uruguay. So stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. And a very warm welcome if you have just joined us on the Monocle Daily. It's Emma Nelson behind the microphone and around the other two microphones in Studio One here at Midori House are Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risks. Hello, Chuck. Good evening. Good evening. And Agathe Dumarais, who's a Global Forecasting Director for the Economist Intelligence Unit. And it, crystal balls are your speciality. And also the author of Backfire, How Sanctions Reshaped the World Against U.S. Interests. It's a delight to have you aboard the Good Ship Daily. Welcome, Agathe. Thank you for having me. And I must evening, say, everyone. good to have you with us. I must say, I think we need to do, we do need to count the number of languages that collectively we all speak. Uh, because looking at you, Agathe, you're, you speak Everything. Just quickly, quickly run up your website. It's sort of like half of your biog is what you, is the lang- different languages that you speak. Some French. Yep. I speak English. Obviously. You are French. Yes. Um, <laughs> Little French. I lived in Spain. Okay. Uh, when I was a child. Yep. And I've lived in Russia and speak Russian. And I also speak Arabic because I lived in Lebanon for a while. Fantastic. So if anybody ever gets lost, Agat will get you out. How about you, Chuck? Now you have a different kind of you have a de- different geographical remit, don't you? You're you're a bit cooler and frostier. Oh, I'm still working on my English. Uh, and like Agat, I lived and worked in Russia and speak lots and lots of Russian for my sins. Um, and then as part of a whole Eastern European uh, jaunt through academia, I did a little bit of Romanian and a little bit of Czech and have done some French and Spanish. Wonderful. We're going to have to have a program directly dedicated to the pair of you one day. Um, in the meantime, let's deal with the here and now. We'll be talking about goodness knows what in the next half hour, mainly sanctions, because you both get very excited about that kind of thing. But first, let's talk about the United Kingdom and Japan signing an historic defence agreement today. It enables the UK and Japan to deploy forces in each other's countries. The deal is being signed here in the UK as part of a visit to London by the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. To tell us more, uh, I'm delighted to say George Parker, political editor of the Financial Times, joins me on the line. Hello, George. Good evening. Evening. So, just to explain: has this site, has this document been signed yet? It has um, down at the uh, Tower of London, actually, where it's an unusual venue for this kind of kind of thing. Um, but yes, the the document has been signed, and it's the first time there's been a major defence treaty between the UK and Japan since 1902, believe it or not. And from the British government's point of view, point of view, this is an important part of. Um, what Rishi Sunak views as the tilt of British foreign policy towards Asia. Although, of course, I have to point out there's been a slight retilting of foreign policy back towards Europe from the events of, in Ukraine last year. Indeed. I mean, the fact is that you said that this is, what, 1902, since the, since the UK and Japan last embarked upon such a close military relationship. So we do have to explain why we need one right now today. 
Well, exactly. You mentioned in your intro, this is all really about countering Chinese uh, ambitions, expansionism in the South China Sea and in, and, and, and in the region. And of course, your listeners will say, well, I'm sure Beijing will be quaking in its boots at the prospect of President Japan signing this kind of agreement. But nevertheless, it's a sign, I think, of basically Britain trying to, I suppose, show solidarity with countries, friendly countries in, in the region, notably Japan. Of course, there's close relations between the UK and Taiwan as well. Um, also, this comes hot on the heels of a deal signed between the UK, Japan and Italy to work together on developing the next generation of combat air fighter jets, which again is an important uh, important part of that. So Britain has been you know, talking about expanding its role in the in, in the Asia-Pacific region. It sent an aircraft carrier there last year. But nevertheless, you know, geography keeps drawing you back to the fact that Britain's you know, principal concerns economically and strategically remain in Europe, of course. Absolutely. So one wonders, we, we go, we've talked about the timing, but who benefits the most here from this deal? Well, I mean, the, the idea is that it's a reciprocal arrangement which allows, as you said in your introduction, either country to station forces in the other country's territory. And obviously, the, the expectation is that if this was to happen, it would be much more likely that the UK would send troops or naval assets to Japan uh, in the event of tensions flaring up in, in the region. So I suppose that's part of it. And I think also there's a sort of geopolitical economic um, uh, element to this as well, of course, because in signing a military agreement with Japan, Britain is also hoping to build relations with Japan economically. And there's talk, one of the things they were discussing down at the Tower of London this afternoon is Britain acceding to the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership, an 11-country trading bloc, um, which includes countries like Japan, Vietnam, uh, Canada, Chile. Um, so Britain's, again, your listeners will raise an eyebrow, I suspect, at the idea of Britain joining a, a Pacific trading bloc, having just exited one on its doorstep in Europe. But nevertheless, this is a part of the uh, Alice in Wonderland a world of foreign policy we live in in the UK at the moment. Indeed. I mean, we, you talk, you've mentioned a couple of times the fact that Ukraine has decided to probably waylay the United Kingdom's plans to distance itself as much as possible from the from the Europe you know from its next door neighbors but has the war in Ukraine become an enormous distraction from what many argue is a longer term threat by the Chinese um I think that's possibly the case look I mean the British government produced a, a thorough review of its foreign and defense policy uh, a couple of years ago, uh, and it was billed very much as a tilt to Asia, a recognition that, um, that Chinese expansionism was one of the major threats, if not the major threat, facing, West, facing Western democracies. Then the war in Ukraine happened, and that, that integrated review, as it, as it was called, is now being rewritten to take account of events in Ukraine. So I think, you know, inevitably, um, Britain's focus is shifting back towards Europe, because economically, the effects of what's happening in Ukraine are hugely consequential in the UK. So it's true, yes, that Britain is is um, looking you know, much more intently, I suppose, across the, the channel into continental Europe. But I have to say also that you, know, that you can do two things at the same time. And um, there has recently been a, an agreement between Britain, America and Australia about closer defence links, particularly on building nuclear-powered submarines. So you know, Britain is trying to, to sort of develop a sort of two-pronged approach to foreign policy. And I think countries in the region are grateful for the fact that UK is, is doing that actually. There is an interesting point though that you, you mentioned a moment ago the, the 
discussion over British bids to join uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And we've got Japan, Canada, Mexico and Chile. There's, there's close nations that they are to the, to the United <laughs> Kingdom. But we, we have the, uh, the former UK Environment Secretary saying, hold your horses with this thing. We have only just exited a large agreement which binds the United Kingdom to a series of agreements and conditions and rules. Um, he's also said that actually the, the trade agreement with Australia that the United King's Kingdom si- signed a little while ago is not a good deal for the United Kingdom at all. So we already have British politicians from the ruling party warning against an enormous trade deal being joined. Yeah, you're talking about George Eustace there, who was the British Environment Secretary until quite recently. And, and as you say, he, he was highly critical of the deal that the British government signed with Australia, which he thinks has left British farmers exposed to cheap or even unfair competition from farmers in Australia. And it's interesting, this, because George Eustace is a leading Brexiteer, a passionate supporter of Brexit. And yet he's pointing out that these trade agreements, and Australia was really the first significant new all-new trade agreement that Britain signed since Brexit was bad for Britain. Um, even on the government, British government's own figures, it would bolster the British economy by about 0.08% of GDP, so a tiny amount. And as you say, the problem with trade agreements is, yes, there are winners, but also there are losers. And in politics, you tend to hear more about the losers. And what George Eustace is worried about is, as you say, we sign, in, sign up to the Trans-Pacific Partnership and we, come up, we sign up to a whole load of agreements, including he's concerned about the fact that Australia, for example, or rather Canada in this case, would be able to send hormone-treated beef to Britain, which is currently banned in the UK. So he's worried that British farmers, again, could be exposed to what they would regard as uh, unfair competition. So, yeah, I mean, trade deals have have winners and losers. And it's one of the reasons why, of course, President Joe Biden is so reluctant to sign any new trade agreements in the States, including one with the UK. George Parker, political editor of the Financial Times. Thank you, as ever, for joining us on Monocle 24. You're listening to The Daily. Here in London, I'm joined in the studio by Charles Hecker and Agathe Dumaret. Um, Charles, before we move on to, I think uh, George mentioned Joe Biden a moment ago, he's, he's, on, he's next on our list of discussion topics. But um, something that George just said a minute, you know, this is going to leave Beijing quaking in its boots. Well, it's interesting to hear George's perspective on this from the UK's side of the transaction. But this uh, defence agreement between the UK and Japan also comes on the back of some fairly significant changes in defense policy in Japan, including efforts by Kishida, the prime minister, to significantly increase defense spending, um, number one. Number two, to develop um, an offensive capacity in a country that for the time being has a pacifist constitution and has an army called the defense force. Um, And also they're trying to change their their stature and their and and the, the types of weapons that they use. I don't think that China is going to be quaking in its boots, um, but militarily and geopolitically, George is absolutely right to point out that the temperature is rising over there. This is an interesting point. I mean, when you think about it, the, the document that's been signed today allows or enables Japanese troops to run around the United Kingdom. That's that's quite a mind boggler, isn't it, Agat? Well, I would say that this is mainly a symbolic step. I, I can't really imagine Japanese troops on UK soil, at least at the moment. Uh, but I think that what the UK is doing... I'm is not counting anything out now. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. But I think what the UK is doing is it's also thinking long term here. And we know that long term, there are many, many chances, very high chances that China is going to make moves towards Taiwan. And then the big question will be, what will the US do? Will it react to a potential Chinese? 
Chinese aggression or invasion of Taiwan? And then what would the UK do? So that would be my first point. It's, it's to me, mainly a symbolic step. And the second point is, I think, in the broader context of Brexit, I mean, and I'm French here and I will bring the, the French perspective, I think this deal is going to raise some eyebrows in France because France and the UK are traditionally very, very strong military partners. But what we're seeing now with AUKUS, for instance, and with this deal is greater alignment between the UK and the US. I'm not entirely sure that the relationship will be an equal partnership between the UK and the US, to put it very diplomatically. So I'm not sure that this is going to greatly benefit the UK, but... Well, only time will tell. We'll see. They got a nice dinner out of it, at least, and a trip to the Tower. Um, let's, let's <laughs> strange place, Tower of London. So strange. <laughs> so strange. You know, built in the sort of like the late 11th century is a sort of a where we house the crown jewels and a sort of a, a sort of the sign, the sign of military might, but also where you where you lock up traitors. Anyway, let's move on to Joe Biden because uh, the U.S. president says he's surprised that several documents marked classified from his time as vice president. He's surprised they should have been found in his private office, including among these items were US intelligence memos and briefing materials that covered topics including Ukraine, Iran and the UK. The classified documents date back to 2013 to 2016, reportedly. Uh, Mr Biden was asked about the documents at a press conference in Mexico earlier. Uh, This is what he said when he described how his lawyers found the files in a locked cabinet. And as soon as they did, they realised there were several classified documents in that box and they did what they should have done they immediately called the archives immediately called the archives turned them over to the archives and i was briefed about this discovery and surprised to learn that there were any government records that were taken there to that office but i don't know what's in the documents i've my lawyers have not suggested i ask what documents they were I've turned over the boxes, they've turned over the boxes to the archives, and we're cooperating fully, cooperating fully with the review, and which I hope will be finished soon, and uh, there'll be more detail at that time. Now, I mean, if anybody from that piece of radio could infer that there was a man holding his hands up going, I've no idea what was going on here. I think that was that was Joe Biden doing his absolute best to say transparency at the top of his voice. Yeah. Heavy sigh and oh, dear, uh, because the optics of this are disastrous. Um, the problem is that when you look into what the president just said live on the air um, and the comparison that everybody is inevitably making to the presence of confidential documents um, in President Trump's hands, these are two very, very different cases. Um, Joe Biden, first of all, as he said, and he's right, very openly declared that these documents were discovered. First of all, they were discovered in a private office, number one. Um, Trump's documents were discovered essentially in a hotel in, in Mar-a-Lago <laughs> where he lives and where guests come and go as, as they please. Um, the other thing is that Donald Trump ordered the removal of those documents from the White House for their relocation to Mar-a-Lago. President Biden, and you have to believe him until proven otherwise, and there will be an investigation by law enforcement, says that he has no idea what they were doing there and how they got there. And there were about 
10 documents. And so it's entirely possible that they were stuck to the back to another, uh, the back of another file, whereas President Trump had hundreds, if not thousands of, page, of pages of confidential documents. The other, the final thing in all of this is that President Trump was asked by law enforcement, do you have any confidential documents in your possession? And he said no. And then he was discovered to have lied. President Biden, as soon as this was discovered, called the National Archives, called law enforcement and did the right thing. So one has to ask, though, I get that, um, as Charles has quite eloquently described the Donald Trump document Mar-a-Lago scandal, which is pretty hefty, had that not already pre-existed, how much trouble do you think Joe Biden would be in as a president of the US who, as vice president, somehow managed to have classified documents in his office? Well, I think it depends on who you ask. I think that if you ask the Democratic camp, people will tell you, well, Biden is doing the right thing. And I think that listening to the extract from him talking, it's very clear that he's at pains to show he's doing the right thing, exactly what he's supposed to be doing. So I'm sure that if you ask the Democratic camp, they will tell you he's doing the right thing compared to Trump, especially as we've just heard. But I'm sure that if you ask the Republicans, they will tell you that, no, the Democrats can't be telling Trump that he was doing something bad just because they will be saying Biden did the same thing. So, of course, it's absolutely not the same thing. And I think that the key thing here is that Biden is cooperating fully. So the optics are, well, quite different and the behavior is quite different. But I'm sure that the Republicans must be rejoicing and they will say, "Okay, stop bothering Trump. Biden did the same thing. It all, you know, the, while we may be arguing the question of intent, you know, what did Donald Trump want to do with 160 documents found in Mar-a-Lago, including maybe he doesn't nuclear, even know himself. He, well, you know, who who are we to dispute what's going on in Mr. Trump's head? But the fact remains, if we just cast our minds back to the to the um, <clears throat> excuse me the the presidential election when Hillary Clinton was very publicly discredited for sending emails to the wrong address. I mean. When you compare that in the grand scheme of things, it's not enormous, but it was enough to plant a seed that totally undermined her credibility. Why don't we add um, what happened to Suella Braverman when it was discovered that she was also sending emails off of her private address? This is clearly something now that has been weaponized in politics. And perhaps this all began with what Hillary Clinton was doing, which, frankly, in comparison to all of this, really pales. Um, And that was also proven by a thorough and authorized law enforcement investigation. Um, But, Emma, I take your point, and that is if there hadn't been hundreds of documents discovered in Mar-a-Lago, would anybody have said anything about, you know, as much paper as you and I have sitting here on the desk in front of us um, showing up in an office belonging to the vice president many, many years ago. Um, It probably would have been an afterthought or maybe just a tiny little brief at the very bottom of the back page of the Washington Post. It is one of those things one wonders whether this is going to create a lingering smell for Joe Biden. Well, I think it's all about polarization. I think every camp, as we've just said, is going to use every single mistake from the other camp against them. And I think that this really shows the polarization of U.S. politics. I don't think things are going to get any better anytime soon, unfortunately. I think that when we take a look at opinion polls, there's really a divide that is growing day by day between, well, the right wing and the left wing of U.S. politics. There is 
very little middle, middle ground, if there is any middle ground anymore. And I think that this is obviously a very worrying development in what is the world's largest economy. And we do have to touch briefly on, on this formation of this um, panel, a new committee to probe, an inver- in inverted commas, the weaponization of federal government. Um, it will be led by a gentleman called Jim Jordan, quite a lively character. <laughs> um, for those of us who, sort of, who are new to this idea of this panel, what exactly will it do? Who wants to pick that one up? Well, I mean, I think this very, fits very nicely in, into the narrative that I got to describe, and that is that the, the polarization and the weaponization of just about everything in politics. And, and the Republicans are out for revenge now. Um, and that is that it, in their view, the Democrats spent most of the Trump presidency investigating President Trump and trying to impeach him. And now they're going to say, sorry, we're in control and we're going to do the exact same thing to you. Um, there are two things that are that stand out about this, and that is what it does is it distracts the lower house of Congress. Congress from governing. There are other things to do in the United States. There's inflation. There's a war in Ukraine. There's a looming recession in the United States. And you would like to know that the government, that the legislators that you send to Washington actually pick up these issues rather than flinging mud at themselves. The other thing is that there is a tiny, and I'm going to exaggerate for dramatic effect here, there's a tiny whiff of McCarthyism about this. And I don't mean Kevin McCarthy. I mean Joe McCarthy from the 1930s and the 1940s in the United States. And, and the House Un-American Activities Committee that was essentially investigating private individuals who were aligned against the government. And what Jim Jordan wants to do now is do the same thing with American political institutions. And that's extremely damaging to the way government works. Okay. You're listening to the Monocle Daily with me, Emma Nelson. Let's, um, I promised you sanctions and you're going to get them. We return to the age-old question of sanctions used by governments everywhere. as that stick with which to beat another nation without actually picking up a weapon? There seems to be a perpetual world weariness associated with them as well. They don't work. The people they intend to target are rarely affected the most most vulnerable suffer. We've heard these arguments before. So when it comes to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the West may have tightened the screws on the Russian economy, but it hasn't stopped the fighting. Well, now the European Union will impose new sanctions on Belarus as it keeps up the pressure on Russia to end its war in Ukraine. Agat, I will come to you straight away because it just so happens you've released a book on US sanctions and how they can backfire. Um, When you hear that the European Union is tightening its grip on Belarus, what's your immediate response? Again? Um, I think there are there are already <laughs> plenty of sanctions. There are already around. lots of sanctions on Belarus. Uh, so my first reaction is, oh, again, is there still anything to sanction on Belarus? Well, yes, there is, and I'm not entirely sure that's the second point that Belarus is the real target of these sanctions. It's all about again sending a message to Russia because Belarus is Russia's best friend or best enemy. You know, you never really know. They have a, a bit of a strange relationship. Belarus, well, in the past at least, used to say, well, no, fine. We're not aligned to Russia. We, we would very much like to go to the EU. But, well, this has all stopped following human rights abuses um, in Belarus. But I think that the real message here is that more sanctions are coming on Russia and that the EU and the US in general are tightening the screws all around Russia with Russian allies to try to tighten the screw on Russia. Now, I mentioned at the start that sanctions don't work. It's the usual argument that's trotted out. 
Charles, I, I suspect you may want to correct that. This is a question of expectations and patience. Um, and that is that I think that there's an expectation in the public and also perhaps in government circles that if you sanction a country on Monday, its economy collapses on Tuesday. And that's just not the way it works. It takes a fairly long time for sanctions to play out. But what we do know now, for those who have exercised a bit of patience and who are looking carefully at the Russian economy, is that sanctions are very seriously beginning to bite. Um, and Agath looks absolutely joyful on this topic. Yes, yes, because these debates are really tiring. And, and again, I'll bring the French perspective. Uh, half of the French population, or even maybe two-thirds, would say sanctions are not working. So I, I so much agree with you. I'm so glad you said that. So what that. evidence do we have that, that this tired old argument is, is incorrect? So a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, there are some fresh statistics about collapse in Russian GDP, a collapse in Russian manufacturing. And, and the one that everybody likes to point to is what's happening to automotive manufacturing in Russia. Um, there has been a collapse in the price of Russian oil, which is now putting enormous pressure on the Russian budget. Russia calculates its budget based on certain assumptions about the price of oil, and the price of oil is way below that assumed price now, and that's all due to sanctions. What you won't see are Russian citizens sort of, you know, walking through the streets, you know, thread in threadbare clothing and, and begging in bare supermarket shelves. But even that situation is becoming a little bit more difficult. Um, I guess the challenge going forward very briefly is that, you know, there are always workarounds and there are always loopholes and, and, and Russia will be looking to partners, including Belarus, to evade sanctions. And there are other countries right now that are getting a lot of goods into Russia by not applying Western sanctions. Can I just ask you what therefore the intention of sanctions are if you are going to um, if you're not going to see people every single day finding themselves being bitten by the actions of Vladimir Putin. What, what is the purpose? Both of you I think can pile in on this. I mean, sanctions are designed to do two things. They're designed to punish and they're designed to change behaviour. I got over to you. <laughs> I think essentially for sanctions against Russia, I think that to discuss their effectiveness, it's really important to go back to their goals because otherwise we're essentially discussing is a screwdriver working? Well, yes, maybe, but not for neurosurgery. Um, so essentially, when we take a look at the objectives of sanctions against Russia, I would say there are three objectives. The first one is to send a diplomatic message of unity and resolve to Russia that the West is standing with Ukraine. I think the message was loud and clear well received by the Kremlin. I don't think that Putin was expecting such unity and such tough sanctions from the West. He was actually betting that the sanctions disputes that we saw in the past would happen again. Second objective, making it more difficult for Russia to wage war against Ukraine. It's not about a collapse of the Russian economy. It's not about regime change. It's not about completely changing Putin's behavior from one day to another just because of sanctions. It's about making it more difficult, less financial resources, less technological resources. And I think that sanctions are working here. Doesn't it make a country more resourceful, though? Because Russia then suddenly realised who's its pals are. Well, it's, it's very difficult to say that, especially for a Russian economy, I think that what the Russian economy is going to need now is access to technology. And that is far, far more difficult than access to, well, staples, usual ones, you know, that you could import or there would be loopholes or there would be smuggling. I think access to technology and especially for semiconductors, which is going to be very tricky, Russia doesn't have an easy fix. And I would say things are going to get worse day by day because sanctions are a slow poison, very gradual. But if you are Vladimir Putin and you have 
sort of formed your existence and your identity through the idea of basically, you know, the, the end of communism was the worst thing that ever happened. And that the Soviet Union pr took immense pride in not needing anything from the rest of the world. You could almost see Putin saying, bring on those sanctions because that will force us to return to where I wanted us to be in the first place. Yeah, just a quick one on that. I mean, the, the challenge to the Russian economy, and, and, and as Russian speakers, we will be familiar with the expression importazamishenia, <laughs> which is import replacement. There is a challenge to that's try... Such a, that's such a useful phrase to you. Do you reckon? Um, <laughs> it's, it's on everybody's tongues in Moscow, I can tell you that. But... Um, you know, it is a challenge um, to an economy to try to support itself. These days, in an era of globalization, in an era of specialization, in an era of trade agreements, as we've been discussing since the top of the show, um, autarky or having a completely self-sufficient economy is virtually impossible. Yes, and especially in the field of technology, as we were discussing. I mean, obviously, the whole discussion at the moment is about Russia turning to China, but China doesn't have access to top-notch semiconductor technology. At the moment, it's entirely controlled by the US. So I think that Russia is going to really struggle in that field. And what we're going to see is really a decoupling of Russia from global supply chain. So of course, Russia will have alternative partners, emerging countries, China, etc, etc, etc. But it has lost its greatest export destination, Europe, for energy. That will be very painful, very significant, especially for gas, because to export gas, you need pipelines, you need to build them well, and you need contracts to export this gas. That also requires technology to build the pipelines that will be slow and we're seeing that China is in no hurry to oblige I think that China knows that it will be able to extract more concessions from a cash-strapped increasingly desperate Russia so I think that the situation is actually pretty bleak okay we will move on now to Parliament buildings um, I'm joined around the table to talk a little bit more about this by Charles Hecker senior partner at control risks and Agathe de Marais who's a global forecasting director for the Economist Intelligence Unit and the author of back how sanctions reshape the world against US interests. If you want to hear more about what Agathe has to say about sanctions, she's got a book about it. But let's move on to these buildings now, because since the historic Parliament building in Vienna closed down for much-needed repairs in the summer of 2017, Austria politically has suffered one crisis after another. Chancellors have come and gone, governments have collapsed. So will this change now that the seat of Austrian democracy is restored? Our Monocle's correspondent in Vienna is Alexei Korolov, and he brings us this report. We'll be hearing first from Ortfried Friedreich from the engineering firm Axis. You can at this building see the developing of structural engineering. It was very interesting. It was uh, looking back how people worked in ancient time. <laughs> <laughs> ancient. <laughs> it's taken more than five years and an impressive feat of engineering. As Ortfried Friedreich, managing partner of engineering firm Axis, explains. Everything was yellow there. Mm -hmm. We broke down. Wow. It was an old construction in the end of the 19th century with the materials they had at this time. The building is the same as it was before renovation, but we made 10,000 square meter more area for people, for better usage. Built in the 1880s in a lavish Greek style by Danish architect Theophil von Hansen, the building suffered heavy damage in the Second World War and some serious neglect in the decades after. 
So much so that MPs even had to pass a special law to exempt their workplace from standard safety regulations so that the fire department couldn't evict them on hazard grounds. Now the Austrian parliament is in full working order again. But you can't say the same about Austrian politics. A study published in November said that only a third of Austrians trusted their political institutions, compared to over 60% in 2018. Architektur, Kunst prägt auch das gegenseitige Miteinander. Und ein unverzichtbarer Bestandteil unserer Arbeit ist die Medien, die hier vertreten sind, die uns begleiten. So last night, as journalists gathered to admire the restoration work, at some point weirdly to the accompaniment of a pianist, the speeches were all about the need to bring more transparency to the parliamentary process. In that spirit, the building is now open to the public. There's also a restaurant, an observation deck above the main chamber called Democracy Workshop, and some 1.8 million euros worth of art by contemporary Austrian artists. Yeah, also meine Installation here besteht aus 60 Metallseilen. Martina Steckholzer is one of them. Her contribution is a web of metal wires installed in one of the staircases. Im Englischen haben wir es jetzt genannt String Figures, dazu nachher mehr. Und so habe ich in die jeweils in die Deckenbereiche jeder Ebene und das sind ja fünf. The Austrian state spent over 400 million euros on this renovation project. But was it worth it? And will it become a template for other aging public buildings? A last word to Ortfried Friedreich at the Austrian engineering firm that carried out the works. This question is very, very difficult to answer because if it would be a new building, it would be cheaper. But what should we do with this, this old building? Then you only have a museum. The main target was to use this building for the original purpose, but open it for the public and have a transparent democracy. And that's the reason you have to renovate it. And hopefully we made it good. And hopefully most people are thinking, oh, that was a good solution. For Monocle in Vienna, I'm Alexei Korolev. And if you want to go and have a look at the new Austrian uh, restored parliament building, we think it's on the Ringstrasse in the centre of town. Uh, please let us know if you've got that wrong. Uh, let's talk about our favourite parliamentary buildings and whether they actually do imbue us with a sense of, I don't know, the sort of conciliatory and debate and progress and whatever you want to talk about. I mean, Charles, you have spent time inside the Russian government buildings in Moscow, which must be eye-opening. Well, I, you know, there is a. Th I, I do believe that the amount of 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 time and money and effort and 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 um, the the investment in public facilities tells you an awful lot about a country's attitude towards government. Um, and I think that this this holds broadly. It collapses in a couple of places, and 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 the first one, for example, is the Parliament in Budapest, which is one of the world's most beautiful buildings. Um, but you can't really vouch for the quality or the beauty of the laws that come out of the Hungarian Parliament. Number one. Number two, I have been inside the lower house and actually the upper house, come to think of it, of the Russian parliament um, way, way, way back in the days of my report, my time as a reporter for the, the Moscow Times. And, you know, the, the lower house is across the street from the Kremlin, which is one of the most beautiful architectural ensembles in the world. Um, the r lower house of Russian parliament is frighteningly 
uncharacterful. It is housed in the former Soviet Gosplan building, which was responsible for the five-year plan of the Soviet Union, which essentially sat at the heart of the rot of the Soviet Union. And they put their parliament in that very building, and it's not a thing to look at. Thank you for that. In comparison to that, I mean, you just, that immediately made me think of the Reichstag in, in, in Berlin, which has at its heart a, a commitment to transparency. Yeah, I think, and that would be a very German thing. I think, essentially, when we take a look at the parliaments in every country, as we've just said, they say a lot about the political culture. So, say the Reichstag, transparency. I think that when we take a look at the French parliament, it's all about debate. You know, people are sitting ne next to each other in, in, clo in close, um, well... Like some Sartrean uh, yeah. nightmare. Yeah, but it, it, it's all about our culture of debate, you know. It's, it's very, and, and as a French person, again, uh, I think that would be very French. Um, I really enjoyed, I, I used to live in Vancouver. I really enjoyed Canadian parliament buildings. The federal one is a grand one. Um, I once gave an, an expert witness there, uh, testimony there, and it, it was all very, yes, grand and almost pompous. You know, you could feel the weight of the Commonwealth also. Um, and then they have all these parliament buildings in the provinces, as they call them, and they some, somehow not mimic the Ottawa Parliament, but in, in a way, you know, you can, you can see some similarities. So, very interesting, you know, to take a look at this, to have an idea of the political culture and the political system. It's interesting what you mentioned there that made me think, well, actually, the building has to humble you. It, makes you, it has to make you think that you are part of a bigger and more noble process, that you're just going through these doors. You didn't get that feeling when you were in Moscow, Charles. <laughs> Um, well, everything, you know, size matters in Moscow. And, right. and, and, and the lower house of parliament, the building is enormous. It's absolutely vast. And it's intimidating, um, but not in the sort of way that gives you a sense of civic pride. Um, and I think that's th this idea of being humbled is in part because you feel pleased or happy to be a part of this. You don't quite get that in the state Duma in Russia. But actually, I think this is very Russian, you know, that this feeling of, of being humbled and being very small. And, you know, I think this is the Russian yeah. mentality. The mm -hmm. state will break you. Essentially, you are nothing. You are disposable. The state will break you if it wants to. And I think that this is very clear. Actually, yeah, I've, I've been to the Duma too. I think that was very, very clear. You are nothing. And I think that comes out very clearly. What a happy end to note, a happy <laughs> note to end on. <laughs> Agathe, <laughs> you have nothing. Uh, that was Agathe Demaille, who's a global forecasting director for the Economist and Intelligence Unit, and Charles Hecker. Thank you both so much for coming into Midori House today. Now, on the eastern coast of Uruguay, a sunny new residence programme for artists from across South America has been launched, and our Latin America affairs correspondent, Lucinda Elliott, has sent us this report as the latest artistic arrivals settle in for the 2023 season. The remote fishing village of Jose Ignacio in Uruguay comes alive each summer in the Southern Hemisphere. Prized for its unspoiled beaches, low-rise architecture and a set of smart hotels, the South American glitterati descend on its coast for a few sunny months each year. Originally, it was a big draw for artists. A peaceful spot, a little over 30 kilometres east of Uruguay's second city, Punta del Este. Tourism's heavy footprint in recent years, though, has dissuaded many from being able to stay, as the community competes with wealthier holidaygoers. A new residence for artists across Latin America is trying to change that. Spearheaded by Argentine collector Amalia Amoedo, the idea at first was to channel her own interests in contemporary art from the continent by supporting new projects. 
In 2021, she went one step further, establishing Fundación Amoedo and opening up a seaside home to both hold her extensive personal collection, but also to introduce regional artists to the world. Turning right onto the gravel path at the town's entrance overlooking the Atlantic Ocean, you come to the Casa Neptuna, or Neptune House, a bright, multicoloured structure in green, yellow and pink that almost looks like a child's sandcastle. It was designed by Edgardo Jimenez, also from Argentina. The residency will host a rotation of two artists here at a time for six-week periods. Veronica Flom, the foundation director, explained the reasons behind the location choice. There is a special atmosphere in this part of the world. José Ignacio seemed like an ideal place for artists to concentrate, to focus on their practice and to connect with nature. It is quiet, but at the same time full of energy. Casa Neptuna, where our residencies take place, is surrounded by the native forest and the ocean. In 2023, we will have the second edition of Fara Residency. I caught up with Bolivian artist Andres Bedoya, who just returned from his residency in Uruguay and talked about his time in the village. I was in Uruguay for about six weeks, and in that time, I was able to explore certain topics that had been brought to our attention concerning Uruguayan history and Uruguayan art history, which is very interesting. Additionally, I was able to explore some ideas that I had pending, so to speak, that I had the opportunity to finally make amongst these. And quite interestingly and randomly, I uh, was able to work with uh, a dental technician who makes dental prosthetics. And this is very interesting to me from a material point of view because it, it is working with particular metal alloys and very particular and fine porcelains. And so this is something I'd wanted to do for a very long time. And in a sort of unplanned way, I was able to do so in Uruguay. Besides the artwork, of course, what this residency provides is, is, is a lot of quiet time and time to reflect in a very, very beautiful part of Uruguay. As somebody who comes from a place that has no ocean, being right by the ocean was, was something very beautiful that I took advantage of. On the back of a trip to Art Basel, Miami, I asked Andres how he views the contemporary Latin American art scene in 2023. I think that uh, once again, we are in a very difficult situation. And uh, what I'm most interested in currently is, is, is just talking about how, how one can actually make work long term uh, when the economics don't seem to add up and certainly don't improve. Um, if anything, they've gotten worse. Uh, I think that uh, a sort of romanticized myth around Latin American art and artists is that we have always created work in, 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 in situations that are difficult, be them political, social, or economic. And because that myth has sort of been created, and because, quite frankly, conflict is demanded from the work we make, meaning, you know, uh, international biennials want work about conflict, um, then nobody seems to be addressing, you know, the root uh, of something at the very root of this, which is that artists are having a very difficult time making work. Art is is an impoverishing endeavor, quite frankly, and um, and institutions, biennials, uh, uh, even international institutions, do nothing uh, to try to reverse the economics and the difficulty in the economics um, of being an artist in Latin America. You have you know, world-class museums that have laughable um, acquisi acquisition budgets. They have uh, uh, curatorial departments 
if we can even call them departments, uh, that are funded externally. So they're actually not permanent. And so, you know, I, I'm personally disheartened. And in the context of Fundación Amamoedo, I think that they have the potential of being a, a world-class example of how to properly finance art making and properly finance um, projects and properly support uh, art careers long term and I certainly hope that they're able to keep that up and I certainly hope that others follow in their example. The foundation also plans to give out grants. As of March it will begin international partnerships including London's Delfina Foundation and Casa Wabi of Mexico said Veronica. In 2023 we are launching the Fundación Amamoedo Grants, an ambitious grants program that is intended to provide support to artists and other non-profit organizations of the region. We are also presenting strategic partnerships with local and international institutions, as well as new interdisciplinary residencies for cultural agents to help foster the collaboration across cultural segments of the Latin American art ecosystem. We are really looking forward to developing our new initiatives to support the artists and the art scenes of Latin America. And the foundation appears to be in good company. James Terrell, the American artist known for his work with light and movement, chose Jose Ignacio for his latest Sky Space that opened opposite. There's the annual film festival each January and a string of cultural events happening this summer season. For Monocle, in Uruguay, I'm Lucinda Elliott. Thank you, Lucinda. And thanks also to my panellists today, Agathe Dumare and Charles Hacker. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Permintuan. And our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. Thanks to them all. I'm Emma Nelson here in London. The Monocle Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that if you can. But goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>